Welcome back to the Always Hope Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mario, and I pray that you're having a blessed day. Thanks for allowing me to be part of it. All right, have you ever had a hard day at work? And while you're driving home, all you can think about is the stress and tension of the day. Then out of nowhere, you see the sun setting and it just captures your heart. And for a brief moment, your stress dissipates as you get lost in the beauty of that moment. Or how can we know which song to listen to or movie to watch when we need a good cry? In other words, why does beauty pierce our hearts? What is beauty and why does it capture our imaginations? Answering those questions in depth is the focus of today's episode. And joining me on the show is Bill Donahue, Senior Lecturer and Content Specialist for the Theology of the Body Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Bill has delivered numerous lectures on the topic of beauty and its implications to both faith and life. In this episode, we talk about the transcendental nature of beauty, its relationship with truth and goodness, the role beauty has in bringing hope to others, how being overly pragmatic is not a fully human life, and how beauty can raise us above our suffering. We end the show by exploring practical ways to cultivate more attention to beauty in your life. It's all around. We just need to take a moment to recognize it. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. I'm grateful to my growing audience and to those who have expressed how this podcast has helped them. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen and sharing your stories with me. This show is for you. I pray that it helps you make sense of whatever hardship you're experiencing today. Now, let's talk about beauty. Bill Donahue, thanks for joining me on the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, praise God. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, if you could just take a minute to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. What do you do for the Theology of the Body Institute? And what drew you to talk and write about this concept of beauty? Mm, sure. So <clears throat> I'm a senior lecturer and content specialist for the Institute. I've been with the Institute for really since the beginning, I guess about 14 years now and five years full time, the past five years. So I teach, I speak, I write, I travel nationally and internationally. And uh, my favorite part of this work is the week-long courses that the Institute offers. So just the chance to immerse people and myself in St. John Paul II's beautiful vision. I mean, this is a this is a vision of the human person and human life and love that I think has just rocked my own life. And um, our mission is to just unfurl it for the world to see. And it's never been more necessary, I think, than today to have an integrated vision of life. And it's it's been such a gift. That's what I do. And then who I am is a husband and a father. So I'm a father of four and husband of one, obviously. <laughs> My wife, Rebecca, and I are blessed uh, with a fully adopted family, two boys, two girls. And um, they are our little school of love, as I always say, our kiddos, ages 10, 8, 6, and, and 3. They're constantly drawing us out of ourselves. And uh, so talk about trying to live, live the gift, the gift that John Paul talks about that life is our kids help us do that every day. So Amen. praise God. Amen. Amen. That's great. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. A friend of mine, Dr. Tom Neal likes to say that parenthood is, is like this. He says that uh, we give them life and they give us holiness. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Hey, man. That is so true. 
I call them my little saint making machine. That's it. That's what they are. <laughs> you don't realize what needs to die inside of you <laughs> until, until you're up at two o'clock in the morning having to, to calm a, a crying child oh, yeah. or, you know, taking care exactly. of them. So that's awesome. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks for, for, for sharing all of that. And, and again, God bless the work that you do. And obviously your, your life and vocation, state of life as a husband and father, um, we all just need grace and, and blessings. Um, but for the focuses of today's show, um, let's talk about this, right? So philosophy, as, as I understand, I'm a counselor. I'm, I'm not a philosopher. I, I'm an armchair theologian, as I like to say also. Um, but philosophy speaks of the three transcendentals of life, right? That there's truth, there's goodness and beauty. And that is to say that we long for truth, for goodness, and for beauty. But Catholic theology, as I understand it, takes that one step forward and not just says that these are desires or transcendentals, but rather this is like God himself, right? That God is true, good, and beautiful because he is reality. Um, and therefore, God is the fulfillment of all of our desires. Um, and so I, I know that these three concepts are, are intimately connected. Um, but if we can just focus on beauty, right? What is beauty? How is it connected to truth and goodness? And how is it distinct from truth and goodness? If, if we can even ask those things. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's your uh, structure there is, is leading us into a deeply philosophical uh, conversation, right? <laughs> well, let's that go is, into uh, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I think is essential these days. I think we have to get ourselves um, informed so we know what reality is, right? I mean, I think philosophy in a sense is kind of that that sort of study of reality asking the deeper questions and truth beauty and goodness these transcendentals those are the those are the, the holy trinity so to speak of of god in the world where we experience him sometimes without knowing it i mean we every human person longs for the truth nobody wants to be lied to right and there's nobody you would ask and say well, you know would you like me to lie to you no no thank you right i want you to tell me the truth Everybody longs for the good. Nobody wants something bad, right? Somebody gives you an apple. If they give you a bad apple, you're like, no, thanks. I want a good apple. Everything we want should be good. And things that are beautiful draw us, right? We, we long to look at beautiful things. When we see something or hear something or taste something beautiful, we do this double take because something's pierced us and we're moved by it, whatever it might be or whomever it might be. So these things, truth, beauty, and goodness in particular, they, as the name is, transcendental, right? They help us transcend for a moment. We kind of step out into a larger world. And that's, that's what makes truth, beauty, and goodness uniquely human. I think that in these days, boy, do we need something to remind us of what it means to be human. Saint, I'm not saint, well, maybe someday, but Thomas Merton once said, uh, he said, guard the image of man, for it is the image of God. Be human in this most inhuman of ages like this powerful thought and truth, beauty, and goodness are these refreshers that yes, this is human life. A human person can appreciate these things. Now back to your question, like that's laying down the groundwork there. I think beauty, I mean, it's in so many ways, beauty just seems to be the most palpable, uh, uh, nourishing, attractive one of these transcendentals that seems to be the net by which so many souls are captured. If that makes sense. I mean, Bishop Robert Barron, he had said that evangelization should should lead with the like the arrow point, the arrowhead of beauty. That that beauty is what pierces us, and so that we should lead with that. Think about how many people over the centuries have been moved first by the beauty of uh, of God, the beauty of the cathedral, the beauty of a symphony, uh, the beauty of creation. Something pierces us and opens you up. So I think 
it's important that we're going to do in this this talk today, this conversation. We're going to focus on beauty because it seems to be the one that opens up. And then and then when we taste the beautiful, we want want to know why is this true. So we we are in a pursuit of the truth. And when we we're in that quest, we realize this is good, right? So pierced by beauty, we we seek for the truth and we sense that this is good. So these three things, this kind of holy trinity, these transcendentals are kind of like this carriage, you know, it's like a Cinderella's carriage that draws us up to the palace of the king, right? Because they're all coming from God and he can wrap himself in the attributes of truth, beauty, and goodness in a million different ways in this world, in our experiences. So when a person is in tune with the transcendentals, particularly beauty, it just makes life, I mean, for me, I'm you know, speaking personally, it makes life this wild ride, right? This sort of romance where the God of love is constantly teasing and drawing me out of myself by these things. Well, how can we claim something to be beautiful then? Is it, is it not just merely subjective that beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's been said a million times over, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's in the eye of the beholder in a certain sense, like there is a subjective quality to it because it pierces us. And some people find things beautiful that another might not find as beautiful, <clears throat> though there might be a spark of it. I think though we, it's a disservice to think it's only a subjective, like, uh, you know, it's only for me. That that can be a very isolating concept of beauty. There are objective truths to beauty. There are things that deal with shape and form and proportion and a quality uh, that whatever is beautiful has those things in it. You can go back to Plato and you can go back to Aristotle or Boethius or some of these other people, Plotinus, some of the ancients, and they, they saw this. They saw that things that were harmonious, things that were symmetrical, things that had sort of intention behind them, they were objectively beautiful. And they, they subjectively pierced many people, right, to, to long for something, just to look at it. So I, I think it's, you got to have that dance between the both the subjective and the objective. We can't just say, it's only for me. I mean, that, that's a very isolating kind of way to look at things. I think that if we really ask that question and go deeper, everything that we, we would call beautiful, you know, if we have a properly formed and ordered heart, people would say, yes, there is an element of the beautiful there. Amen. So then the, the beautiful, is, if I'm hearing you right, isn't just about some, some experience internally that just like, wow, that was beautiful. But rather, as you said, it pierces the heart and rather it pulls me out of myself. It, it, it makes me be in touch with a, with a longing, the transcendental, something that's more than just my own subjectivity. Is that right? Right. Because God made the universe. He made it objectively, right? We have this objective reality that surrounds us. And the philosophers call that just because these things exist, you, me, a tree, a pine cone, a mountain, a rose, that there's a radiance of being there. That's a popular phrase in the, in the aesthetic of beauty, that this being just radiates. Uh, and I didn't put it in there, right? You didn't put it in there. It's in there. And John Paul II, St. John Paul II, in his letter to artists, he says that beauty is the good made visible. So the objective good of the world that is now cloaked or are uh, incarnated, so to speak, by material things. So that objectively, the tree, the rose, the snowflake, the newborn child, uh, the two hands of lovers clasped together, right? The, like you just, wow, that's just beautiful. That's drawing me out of myself. I see, I see the invisible wrapped in the visible. 
and it is good. And that's what God said in the very beginning in Genesis, right? He says, behold, it is good. And when he looks at us, he says that it's very good. We got a little superlative for us, which is awesome. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. All right. Well, you're talking just a few minutes ago about beauty's role in evangelization. And, and let's tease that out a little bit. In contemporary kind of Catholic culture, or when you look at most of the resources that are out there, when we call evangelistic resources, a lot of it focuses on the truth, which is great. You know, doctrinal teachings, catechesis, a deeper understanding of who God is and Catholic theology, which is fantastic. There's also another movement that you hear people talk about being a good witness and, and living the good life. And, and if you are a good witness of the Christian life, that, that will draw others. But man, maybe it's just me, but I, I don't hear much about this third transcendental talked about as often in terms of living the way of beauty as a real role for evangelization. Um, do you think this has been lost or what more can you say about beauty's role in evangelization? Mm, yeah, I think, <laughs> gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> as much time as you want, man. We can break this yeah, up in right. two episodes, so you're good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, um, it's funny, I think, just to look at church history, I, I think for the very beginning, and I will definitely microwave the millennia that we've got behind us already, but <laughs> I think at the very beginning, it was the beauty of Christ that drew the apostles, right? They, they just were like, who is this person, right? They were drawn to him. And Jesus is asking that profound question, what do you want? So he's not saying, here's what you have to believe, right? Here are the precepts and the objective, whatever's. He's just asking them to get into their heart. And they're like, we want to come with you. He's like, well, come, come and see. Let's go. Let's walk together. Let's experience together. That's beautiful. And Jesus's magnetic beauty filled their hearts, filled early Christian life. And the Romans and the people around them, the pagans would look at them and say, see how they love one another. They saw something beautiful. Right. They saw something beautiful. They weren't handed some truths, so to speak. They saw that the truth was the beauty was the flower of the truth of what they were living. So it was attractive. And then go through church history and you see the longing to express this beautiful God through beautiful art, through beautiful music. I mean, think polyphony, think Gregorian chant, think amazing Gothic cathedrals, mm -hmm. think incredible art, the world's most incredible art flows from the heart of believers who believe in this God of beauty. Now, <clears throat> we've gone through some phases in our, in our church's tradition here of having to sometimes really defend when something ugly like heresy came in. What's heresy? Literally, the word heresy means to rip something apart. So when the integrity of the beautiful faith that we have been given is ripped, uh, it becomes ugly. And I think sometimes a defense mechanism popped in there, you know, and, and maybe let's look at the Council of Trent um, that could be uh, looked at as this first rearing of the head of truth, maybe a little bit over beauty. So Trent really focusing on proclaiming the truth, and which is awesome, right? And and it's of God; He is the truth. But I think that there became there came this stronger emphasis on proclaiming the truth. And you know, I, I remember growing up, and you know, it was a great time. My father was having a reversion to the faith, and my brother and I really really drank that in and were gifted by it. But early on. My dad had this idea of the uh, um, the defense of the faith, which, again, so, so important. And uh, it became like, you know, apologetics and having your, your logical arguments and your ability to refute heresy and things like that. I learned so much from my father in that realm of learning to know and defend my faith. Uh, but it's interesting, as I grew in my relationship with my father, who really taught me my faith in so many ways, I started seeing him more and more pierced by beauty. <laughs> and I was 
I was really drawn to that too. And then I saw that it was the beautiful that moves hearts, that moves things. If we only have truth, it can kind of be cold, mm. right? I have, a pre, I have a friend who's a um, Capuchin brother, and he says, um, <laughs> sometimes he'll meet a, a priest and he'll say, oh, he's an OBM. And I said, OBM? He goes, yeah, orthodox, but miserable. <laughs> That's an OBM. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, this may be a person who, for whatever reason, is defensive and knows their faith is the truth, but it, it suddenly becomes the hammer of truth. You know what I mean? And without without the appeal to the heart, not just the head, it can be dry and it can be sort of not attractive in the sense that uh, the beautiful is. This can be seen sometimes as a compromise, though, if you're headstrong in truth. It's like, well, yeah, but you're, you're watered down. No, not at all. You know, when St. Francis of Assisi was pierced by the stigmata, he cried out, you are beauty. You are beauty. That's what he said to God. He didn't say you are truth. You are truth. He said you are beauty. So it's that beauty that ravishes the heart. I think I think we're starting to see a longing for the beautiful more and more these days as we've gone through a few decades of ugly art in the church, of um, maybe uh, missing some of the rich tradition that we've had in our faith regarding the beautiful. But I think even the words of Pope Francis in Joy of the Gospel, you know, he said that this way of beauty is an essential part of catechesis. Pope Francis said that. Uh, the way of beauty should permeate every level of catechesis in the church, which is awesome. Just so blessed to read that. So I think we're seeing a longing to return to it because, again, you know, maybe in times past, the five proofs of God's existence by St. Thomas Aquinas or, you know, the, the symmetry in the cosmos or, you know, a good syllogism would have converted a heart. In our day and age, I think really it's the beautiful that's going to turn heads. <laughs> Right. In an age of relativism where it's like, well, that's your truth. Um, that's my truth. The beauty just kind of rises above the rest because it's piercing through the head to the heart. That's what we need. Amen. When when you said OBM, I I, I didn't know if I was gonna have to bleep you out or something. I didn't know where you were going with that. So <laughs> I didn't know what the oh, B no, was in, uh, in, a, in, uh, in the OBM. <laughs> this is a clean podcast. It's a, a family friendly oh, yeah. show. So that's, that's right. Just messing. <laughs> Um, so any any evangelistic effort then should have those three uh, components: the true, the good, and the beautiful. And and I think you're right when you say that. Probably since Trent, we've we've put this overemphasis on truth. Um, but but even when we think of modern art, it seems that like it's the opposite, where there's too much emphasis on beauty at the expense of truth or goodness. Like mm-hmm. what happens when art loses its connection from those other true other two elements? Yeah, that is a great question. Von Balthasar has this uh, incredible insight where he says that truth, beauty, and goodness are like three sisters, and you can't you can't separate them. <laughs> if you do, uh, there will be vengeance, right? <laughs> in some in some way, uh, the, this this beautiful trinity has to stick together, and they flow together: truth, beauty, and goodness. And I think yes, there is modern art that has gone so far into the only the subjective or my interpretation that it's become a little bit unhinged from the objective of truth or even of goodness. Uh, I think of, I forget her name right now, but there's a modern artist who made a, basically it was an exhibit in a museum. It was called um, Unmade Bed. And literally it was an unmade bed. It it was, it was an unmade bed. It had like, you know, ruffled sheets and potato chip bags and 
you know, used condoms on the floor and garbage. And, and people would walk by this. And this was somehow supposed to be art. And I remember watching an interview. Uh, the, the, the guy asked the artist, Tracy, I can't remember her last name now, but do you think this is beautiful? And she said, yes, yes, this is beautiful. Now, I, I don't think so. And I think anybody really honestly going past that would say, no, this has been unhinged from an objective of beauty. So you can't separate these three sisters. They have to go together. Yeah, that's certainly a product of our postmodern age where, where everything is subjective. And now there is a place where I think people desire rest and are trying to slow down in life. And so maybe whatever, bless her, but <laughs> she probably found some rest in that. But whether or not that <laughs> communicates real beauty, um, I'm not sure. You know, that just seems to, to kind of be lost in, in, her own, in her own sense of self there. Because art, as you That's said, right. requires like some sort of form or, or some skill, mm-hmm. really. Um, you know, I, I, my definition of art is if, if I could have done that painting, then it's not true art because I'm not a, a good artist. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, like I, could draw, mm-hmm. I could draw a stick figure and that's about it. But, but it, right. needs, it, it needs to have a, a little bit more of a, of a form, of a, of a skill, of a craftsmanship to it um, than just something right. like an unmade bed. Um, so. Right. I think, I think that's true. And I, I think also <clears throat> it doesn't mean that art is, uh, you know, always saccharine sweet or perfect. It, it can be messy. It can be broken. It can be uh, full of angst. I mean, so it, and Pope Benedict talks beautifully about this in some of his letters and his audiences and writings. He talks about, you know, look at the cross. The, Images of the crucifixion are, you know, painful. Grunewald's capturing of the of the crucifixion is, you know, Christ is almost uh, he looks almost leprous and green and pierced by so many wounds and thorns and blood. And so it doesn't mean that art is, um, again, sugary sweet, but it, it conveys pathos. It conveys pain, but it can still do that in a beautiful way, in a way that took craftsmanship and form and light and color. And uh, it's it draws you in. Um, I'm thinking of. One of the most famous altarpieces, uh, it's Roger van der Weyden, I believe, and it's the deposition. So Christ is coming down from the cross. I mean, and he's pale and he's broken. And it's so that's that's not beautiful in a certain sense. But at the same time, when you see the figure of Christ coming down from the cross and then you've got imaged right below him, the image of Our Lady being held by John, St. John. And her bodily form, her shape is mirroring perfectly the broken body of Christ. They're both sort of been one crucified in the flesh, one crucified in the heart or the spirit, Jesus and Mary. You look at that, and even though it's it's capturing an ugly moment, it's absolutely beautiful. The cross is the most beautiful, horrendously painful thing to look at in the universe, right? It's beauty, but it's also pain. I think they, they can go together. Amen. Yeah, because it's reality. I mean, I think like when I listen to, like when mm. I'm, when I'm, when I'm, depressed or something, you know, and I have a, a, a bad day, there's certain songs that I go back to over and over again that just kind of connect with my experience. Or when I have one mm. of those moments where I really just want to have a good cry, I'll, I'll turn to certain movies because I think those movies can really, the artists, the directors, they really capture something that, that connects with me. I think that goes back yeah. to that notion that, man, like we, we just all have this longing and that we shouldn't be afraid of our emotions. And that if we're, mm. we're honest with ourselves and we're able to, if we are artists and able to then paint or sing or sculpt or whatever the, the full breadth of the human experience. Um, right. and that's, that's, that's great. I mean, that's the invitation by, by God and the church to co-create with them the, the experience of human life. 
Yeah, and it actually makes good art. I mean, if you dismiss the pain, the cross, the ugly experiences that we go through that shape us to become saints, if you dismiss all that, the art becomes hollow, inauthentic, kind of fake. And people know that. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a name out there. I don't mean to throw this guy under the bus, but uh, Thomas Kincaid is famous <laughs> for, you know, really saccharine sweet paintings where it's a little babbling brook and there's bright flowers everywhere and it's very pretty. Um, some people do really love that, but uh, for me, it's like mm, I don't know where where are you gonna find that? You know, unless it's manicured in Disney World or something. <laughs> but in the real world, uh, it's different. It's it's a broken world, and the broken doesn't mean it's not beautiful. In John Paul II's letter to artists, he actually says that even when artists plunge into the depths of evil, he says that they still reveal a longing for redemption. So it doesn't it doesn't mean that um, the art has to cover up all that stuff, but sometimes it actually means the opposite, that we should reveal it. Uh, Bono from U2, has a, there was an interview with him talking about his art as a, as a musician. And he says, I became an artist through the portal of grief. He said, when my mother died, I was, uh, what was he, 14, 15 years old. He said, she, she left me alone, but she left me an artist. And he said that, I, you know, through that portal of grief and pain, uh, so much of his music flowed. And look at anybody, really a great artist. You see that, that this, this cross and crown kind of go together. And by facing the suffering and the ache, um, some of the most beautiful art can flow from that. I think that's writing, that's poetry, that's painting, sculpture, dance. All sorts of stuff flow from this authentic facing with reality and shaping it into something beautiful. This is Dr. Mario, and I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Bill Donahue from the Theology of the Body Institute. Once the show is over, please take a moment to find me on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I'm active on social media and look forward to engaging with you on those platforms. Well, with this notion of beauty that we've been talking about, um, when Dostoevsky said that beauty will save the world, what did he mean? Mm. Mm. Oh my gosh. Again, how much time do we have? That is the most profound statement from Dostoevsky, right? It's just, it's mystical. It's funny that in that, in that, um, and when he's phrasing that in the novel, I don't know if it's Brothers Karamazov. I think it's the idiot. Or it, might, it might be idiot. It's yeah, that's idiot, right. Yeah. It's the idiot. He's actually, um, it's a moment of great suffering. He's, the character is uh, going through a profound crisis and a struggle. And that statement comes in the midst of that. So it wasn't like he was, you know, walking through a flower garden and just contemplating a beautiful sunrise. And yes, beauty will save the world. It was actually from the place of pain. So, so what does that mean? Beauty will save the world. Here's, here's my thought on that. God is beauty, right? As St. Francis of Assisi cried out, when he was pierced, you are beauty, you are beauty. So beauty is, is looking up and seeing this transcendent light, this ethereal light of God coming into this place, uh, which this broken world, which C.S. Lewis calls a jungle of filth and imbecility. <laughs> what a flattering statement, right? Yeah, I yeah. love it. <laughs> but it's like God's, God's light comes into this jungle of craziness and brokenness and you know behold i make all things new so that beauty will save the world what does that mean that the human person then must open the heart open the mind the body to this light and say like come lord jesus come into this space this place 
artists use light all the time. I mean, without light, can we have color, right? Can we have shape and form? So the same way artists allow light to come in and to flood their studio, their workplace, whatever it might be, their minds. Every human person has to open to this light and then beauty will save the world. The light of God will give us our bearings, so to speak. We'll be able to see. And this is at the cry of the gospel is, Lord, I want to see. I think that's how beauty will save the world if we open to that light. What I'm thinking about right now is the, the scene from the Shawshank Redemption, where mm, if, it's a phenomenal movie. And there's a, there's a key scene in the, in the movie where Andy is, uh, he gets bold and he starts playing Mozart to the, oh, the inmates, right? And so he mm-hmm. locks the door and he's in, somehow he's in the warden's office and then he locks the door and turns on uh, the opera, uh, The Marriage of Figaro, I think, and, and he starts yep. playing it and he's touched by it and moved by it. And then he turns on the speaker and starts broadcasting this throughout the whole prison. And yes. the scene is spectacular <laughs> because every hardened criminal, every man that's in that space all of a sudden their hearts are just raised up outside of the prison and they have this profound connection with beauty. Um, and, and it gives them, you could see in their hearts, it gives them a taste of freedom, um, elevates their hearts, but it also gives them a, a sense of rest and, uh, and security. Yeah. Beautiful scene. I absolutely love that scene. It is the marriage of Figaro an aria from that, which I think is so cool because in the light of theology of the body, which reveals, God's whole plan from all eternity is marriage, is is communion and union. It's fitting that he would play that from the marriage of Figaro. And it, yeah, it's, it's this refreshing moment that even these souls kind of in exile can realize that they're still free. And that's what Andy Dufresne says afterwards when he was in the mess hall with the other prisoners. Um, he, he says, uh, you know, they can take a lot from me, but they can't take that. They can't take my hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great line from um, Pope Benedict the 16th. He said this back in 2009. And uh, it's, it's a little long, but if I could read this, this is so good, so good. And I think it fits that scene in Shawshank Redemption. So he says, genuine beauty gives man a healthy shock. It draws him out of himself, wrenches him away from being uh, content with the humdrum. It even makes him suffer, piercing him like a dart. But in so doing, beauty reawakens him opening afresh the eyes of his heart and mind, giving him wings, carrying him aloft. And that's just awesome. And that's what beauty does. It sets me free. It, it's, it's transcendent. It reminds me that this is not all there is. It's like that sea breeze, you know, that suddenly changes. And I, and I, I sense it, I scent it, and then oh, I can rest. I mean, it's a, great, it's a great word you just used there, Dr. Mario. You can rest in it. Why? Because it reminds us, I'm not the creator. I'm not responsible for the, you know, <laughs> the furthering out of the universe. Like I can rest in the good God who made me. And this good God has a plan um, for my rest and for, for me to be, to swim ultimately in his beauty in all eternity. I mean, that's what we're made for. Uh, Thomas Merton says that man's highest activity above all is in fact his rest. It's a great line, right? That, that our highest activity is in fact our rest. Cause we're, we're made to be loved. I just don't think we really believe that anymore. Or, or no. we don't, we, for a couple of reasons. One, we just don't have a, we don't, we don't put a value on rest and, mm. and true leisure anymore in our society because we have such a premium on utility, on pragmatism. Oh 
I'm staying busy and just getting stuff done all the time that, that we lose sight of that invitation to rest. And, and I think yeah. that's why, because well, a couple of reasons, I think one though, quite honestly, is I just think rest makes us vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. Like when we really yeah. lay down our defenses mm-hmm. and when we really have to say, I have to stop for a minute and not try to find security and, in all my doing and actually need to receive something that that desire makes me vulnerable. And uh, that's just not a, yeah. a feeling that, that we desire anymore in, in, in our contemporary culture. <laughs> no, right. Exactly. Because being vulnerable, the Latin root there, vulnus means wound to be vulnerable means to expose my wound and the wound of all of us, I think as human persons is that we can't complete ourselves. We're dependent, we're needy. And yeah, who wants to show that? So, you know, we, we sit down at a park bench or we're waiting for a train or an Uber or whatever. And what do we do? 10 seconds into that moment of rest, we grab our smartphones and we start scrolling through stuff. We have to look important. I have to look connected. I have to, I, I can't just sit here on a bench like Forrest Gump, you know, mm-hmm. not doing anything. Uh, it's just crazy that we've become so afraid of that. Uh, Cardinal Sarah in his book, The Power of Silence, talks about this, like just this sort of kingdom of noise and clatter that surrounds us and it's we get lost in it because it's defense against the quiet and the desert the void but and i've experienced this in my own life i mean the the times of fruitfulness of good decisions of being guided by god's plan for me it happened when i was quiet it happened when i you know i take my bike and ride out into the woods that's around my little hometown and just spent time in the quiet walking uh looking up at the sky just sensing my surroundings it's really hard today, you know, um, we're just surrounded by the noise, we're surrounded by constant little distraction. And uh, yeah, we feel like our identity has to be in the production, that I have to be useful. There's an awesome scene in the Gospels that fits this, you know, I'm, I'm sure many are familiar with it, but it's that scene in Bethany where <clears throat> Jesus goes to visit Martha and Mary, and, and Mary just comes out with this alabaster jar of oil. Remember this, and she just breaks the thing, the jar, and pours out the oil, the uh, this fragrant oil on Jesus's feet, and just starts to wash his feet with it. And it's just such an incredible scene, and the whole room is filled. And what's the response? What a waste! Mm-hmm. We could have made money off of that. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the response. Like you're 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 not you're being um, wasteful. You're not being useful. But Jesus, this is awesome. Jesus says, you know, what she has done will be remembered. Like she, she did the better thing. And uh, it's just wild. We hear this constantly today, even with things that are beautiful. How many times have you heard, um, you know, the Vatican should just sell all that stuff and give it to the poor, you know, get rid of all this stuff. You know, the Pope lives in a palace. But this is the beauty. All these treasures that um, are in say, St. Peter's for one place are treasures that are beautiful reminders of God. They're gratuitous, superfluous, beautiful creations that, that show a beautiful, gratuitous, superfluous God who made us. I mean, he just, he loves to do that. And yet we just keep wanting to reduce it, strip it down. And we're no happier for it, to be honest. I mean, no, I don't think so happier. No, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think so. I, 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 I agree. Uh, I've did my undergraduate studies at Florida state university and it's a big campus, public university in Tallahassee, Florida. 
And you can, when you're walking on campus, the, the campus is old. 1851 was the first building. But as you're walking on campus, you can easily, easily see the set of buildings that were constructed in the 50s and 60s because there's just these gross square brick and mortar, you know, and you're like, yeah. what happened in those couple decades, you know, when you're walking oh on campus and then like the newer buildings that were made in the nineties and two thousands, they, they reclaimed this, this sense or the aesthetics, like everybody realized like, Oh wait, we actually have to make these things look nice also and not just be super pragmatic. So we do intuit uh, this, you know, and, and I think the other mm-hmm. place we intuit it as well is, is with a good meal, right? I mean, food, yeah. food is probably eating is probably the most utilitarian thing we can do. We need energy let's eat, mm-hmm. right? That's why we eat because we just need energy to continue to live. Right. But man, who does not like a good meal, right? Who does not like mm-hmm. to just sit and savor a good filet, right? With, with wow. a nice, yeah. a nice glass of wine. And, and while that might not help in terms of any sort of utility, the, the whole experience of eating a good meal just raises my heart up to, to these things that we're speaking about. Yeah, exactly. I I love that image uh, of the food because everything, you know, everything is a kind of sacramental that's pointing us to a fuller reality. So to consume, to receive and consume that, and then that becomes a part of me. uh, And it's, it's just a gift. It's beautiful and it's pleasant. It's pleasing to the senses and nourishing. I mean, that's the way the Lord created the world. He wants it to be that gift. Like literally everything is divine love made food for us, right? Everything is love made food. And God himself becomes that food. And it's just gift. I love the line in the scriptures, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Right. But, but again, back to our earlier point, uh, if I open wide my mouth, I look like, you know, a fool. I look dependent. I look vulnerable. Well, yeah, that's the goal <laughs> because <laughs> we're not God. We need to be open, receptive, vulnerable. Literally, if we don't do those three things, open it to him, become vulnerable and receive, we can't live. I mean, we can't live. It's absolutely essential to do those things. And beauty, back to this main thread here, beauty is the, is the opener. Beauty just, you know, pierces the heart, awakens the senses, and just be in it. I, I think anybody listening to our conversation today, I just, you know, I want to challenge everybody, go back to the most nourishing moments of your life. What were the most refreshing, joyful moments of your life? I guaranteed it was some kind of receptivity be it in adoration, uh, on a vacation by the sea, or a good meal, or a conversation with friends until two in the morning, you know, or you're drinking a, you know, a good stout or a wine, or you're, and you've just received. And those moments are kind of like these hallmark moments, right? Because I have allowed myself um, to be vulnerable so that, that something else, someone else could come in, and my life gets richer for it. Those are beautiful encounters. We have to have them. We can't fabricate them ourselves. We're dependent on receiving. And beauty is the gift that we're called to receive. We'll continue on with this thread then of receptivity. Why then is beauty associated with the feminine? Oh, good stuff. Love it. Oh, love it. Can we please have a part two and a part three? We sure can. Part four, (laughs) part five, part six. Okay. Um, There's a great line in um, C.S. Lewis, by the way, is he's just, phenomenal if your listeners aren't familiar like read everything c.s lewis ever wrote but in his i think it's in his space trilogy this wonderful trilogy of books uh fictional story he has this amazing line about uh god is 
the father, and so therefore is this archetypal masculine. Why? Because he gives, he initiates a gift. And, and C.S. Lewis says, in relation to him, and he's revealed himself as father, all creatures are feminine. Every man and woman is feminine. So what does that mean? Well, if, if, he, if he is the father who gives the gift, sows the seed, uh, then we who receive the seed, we're living somehow femininity at its core. The feminine, even physiologically, is, is the place of the womb. The feminine is the one who can take in, receive, construct, and create with that seed new life. So, okay, so for us, so, so beauty becomes this great mystery of receptivity. It becomes me uh, of taping, taking the form of kind of, of a chalice, right? That gets filled. And so uh, it's like there's mystical connections here. I mean, in the, in the scriptures, in the book of wisdom, wisdom is uh, feminized, right? She's re- referred to as a she. And uh, church fathers, now this is, you know, we're talking archetypal here. We're not talking about like physiological, biological realities, but the son is the beloved. The son receives the father's love. In this sense, there's a feminine quality. We're not saying that God, you know, that the son is somehow, you know, the, the female's coming here, but femininity at its core, receptivity. Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so I love you. Live on in my love. So his, the son, the beloved son, his posture is receptivity. And then to give. The church is known as the bride of Christ. So the, why? Because the church receives the gift of the bridegroom. So when we talk about um, beauty as, as this great mystery, then it, it elicits in us a call to become ephetha, the Hebrew word for open. And again, if we use this male-female dynamic, life can't come unless the feminine is open. It's like the Song of Songs, right? The garden enclosed, uh, the fountain sealed. But then you, you are the master of your own innermost uh, secret. You hand the key over. You allow beauty to pierce you, you allow beauty to come in, and it will enrich you. I think we're living in a period of time where we've so highlighted the masculine, the idea of the construction, production, build, do, work, activity. And I mean, look at our world. Like we we spend most of our day now walking on asphalt and into you know buildings of steel and glass, and and we've lost a bit of this organic feel. I think there's a longing for something more organic in many ways, but by stressing the masculine over the feminine, we're becoming less human, right? Because the human comes about by the marriage of the two. So beauty can help us to access the feminine again. Beauty can help us to become more um, tender, more in tune. and we need the beauty. People need to make time for beauty. People make need make uh, to waste time with beauty. And and just try the experiment, right? Spend ten minutes a day doing nothing but receiving something beautiful. Listen to music. Watch the sun come up. Um, enjoy a good cup of coffee without checking your email or something at the same time. <laughs> just drink the coffee, right? There's a great Buddhist cone that says, uh, uh, when eating an orange, eat the orange." <laughs> that's great or by by drinking a cup of green tea i stopped the war that's a great one right there uh we can do that by by receiving the beautiful and it is as you're saying it's this mystery of the feminine of receptivity 
I'm taking another quick break from my conversation with Bill Donahue from the Theology of the Body Institute. If you have found this episode helpful, please head over to faithinmarriage.org backslash always hope. You'll see my previous podcast episodes and blog posts where I help you navigate the challenges of life, relationships, and culture. Yeah, I think when we reject this, there there is a misogyny at work in here in, here, in all of this. Mm. This this mm. disdain for the feminine to be truly feminine, and even the way that we kind of look at women in our culture today, we we almost want them just to be men. Um, I love yeah. Marvel, I love the superhero movies, but you know, I just saw the mm. the trailers for Captain Marvel, and you know, there's nothing mm. soft and, and vulnerable about her. Uh, there just no. isn't a high value for those qualities anymore. And so even, even yeah. with like art or if a guy as a man shows this tendency towards art, whether it's drama or music, the presumption is almost always that the, the boy is homosexual in some capacity. Yes. And, yes. and like this judgment still exists even, even in our modern day. Like it's just, it's still there. And I think we do, mm-hmm. we do a great disservice mm-hmm. when we make these quick judgments uh, for, for boys and girls who, who have this proclivity towards the arts. You know, you just touched on such a powerful point. And I remember um, I spent almost a decade teaching at an all-boys school. And I saw, I saw that acted out in, just in the boys, that those who had a proclivity towards art or music or theater or something, there was that slant. And it, it's such a bizarre schizophrenic culture that we live in that suddenly somehow that's, that's referred to as gay, when really this is a boy who's got that a appreciative, receptive heart that makes him more a man, makes him more himself, right? <laughs> By allowing beauty to pierce us, we become more fully alive, more fully human. Uh, I think at the core there is just such a fear. And it goes back to your earlier point. It's a fear of being vulnerable, uh, a fear that um, I'm dependent in some way. You know, you're, you're talking about the present cultural crisis it, where women are becoming men. and um, yeah, I mean, please stay where you are. We're not happy either. <laughs> if being a man means being powerful and in control and always productive, uh, that makes you miserable. And we hear, you know, we hear interviews, we hear statistics about women who are saying, like, I, you know, now I'm 48 years old and, you know, I'm at the top of my game, uh, but I, I just missed motherhood. I missed, I missed my femininity by this overemphasis on productivity um, by, be try- by trying to become a man. Uh, so all the data is out there, all the reports are in, but we still like, we can't believe it because it's so hard to just receive and to just kind of be who we were created to be. There's a great book and you might be familiar with it. Dr. Carl Stern, Flight from Woman. Yes. He wrote it back in uh, 1965. Absolutely phenomenal book. Like it's, it's just a, a treasure trove of insights where he talks about this fear of the feminine and how we just we're, we're running from it. And it really is this sort of demonic attempt to be like God uh, when that will never bring peace. It's only in a return to the mystery of this, the being the feminine before the mystery of God uh, and by allowing him to, uh, to, to love us. Ultimately, it's about being loved. Yeah, because we back to the point of just being vulnerable, like we, we run from it or, or we grasp it. Uh, either way is this sense of control that like somehow I can then control this desire in my heart or I have to go grasp and 
and, and just indulge in it or something of that nature. Um, yeah. we just don't, again, God have mercy on us in our culture. We just don't know what it means to be in touch with our desires. We don't know what it means to just allow that longing to be present within us uh, without having this need to shift or sift away or just control every aspect of my being. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just brought up a quote from Carl Stern. I got to read this. He says, and this shows the dynamic that God created this dance of masculine and feminine and of our needing one another. And, you know, also the masculine must also be in tune with its own feminine mystery within. So we're all receptive, but he, he says, this is again, Dr. Carl Stern flight from one only complementariness can make us selfless. The self can be lost only in an other, in, in something which is not self. So this, this elicits what, you know, vulnerability, openness, tenderness. He says it's complementariness which mobilizes our generosity. Hence the phallic woman, this is the one who wants to be, you know, masculated, who denies otherness cannot love. Wow. Right. Wow. We wow. can't, we, we can't love. <laughs> Pope Benedict has an insight there too. He says, you know, unless, and he's talking about man, he says, um, man is is dependent on the gift, and unless he allows himself to receive the gift, unless a man allows himself to be loved, he destroys himself. That's Pope Benedict sixteenth. So it's it's just such an important thing. Uh, I love that you know we're talking on beauty. You know this podcast interview we're talking about beauty, but you can see how it radiates into all of humanity. Like this 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 is literally what it means to be human. Beauty is so caught up in this great mystery because God is beauty. And by opening to him, we can realize who we are. We understand ourselves in his light. Okay. So how do we get a little practical with this? Not, not pragmatic, but, but a little practical in terms of how to cultivate a, a greater awareness for beauty in our own lives. How, how do we begin to live the way of beauty? And if I'm saying this right in Latin, divia pulcritudinis? I didn't. Yes, I, I, tricky, I totally it? butchered that phrase, man. Come on. <laughs> it doesn't. Well, hardly. It doesn't sound beautiful. It doesn't. Doesn't roll off the right? tongue. No, it doesn't. But it's, it, it's the it's the via nice. That's the it. Via pulcritudinis. Yeah. So pulcrum is the Latin for beautiful. Uh, again, not really beautiful. But I, I think. Let me just share my own experience of it, and I think um, let me put it out there for people to try to take in. Practically speaking, <clears throat> we've got to be intentional. That's the thing. Like here we are. We wake up. We're alive. We're moving. Uh, we're surrounded by the most technologically advanced culture in all of human history. I mean, absolutely amazing stuff at our fingertips, literally. But the key is to be intentional about it. The way things are moving with the smartphones that we have in our hands, most of us, I'm sure, 98 percent of us, uh, the way information comes to us now through these screens is not on a human time. Right. It's not that Kairos time, that human time. It's the Kronos time. And it just keeps flying at us. So we have to recognize, first off, if we're going to walk in the way of beauty, we have to be intentional about these tools that surround us. So that means when you get up in the morning, the best thing to do probably is take a deep breath, drop to your knees and praise God for a new day. Give him all you got, your eyes, your ears, your heart, your body and say, Lord, today, let me just receive the great gift of your generous love. Let me be awake. Um, and as you move through your day, start off with just, I, I would say like just 10 minutes of stillness, get a good cup of coffee or tea or whatever you want to do. Find your, your prayer chair or your spot where you're going to look at your, the gospel of the day, maybe, but just first off, have like some quiet, be attentive to the fabric of the armchair you're sitting in. 
the smell of coffee, the bird song outside of your window. What's the weather like today? Look up at the sky. I mean, these are really simple things, but I think in this age uh, where we're, we can be so inhuman, we have to get back to being human. So it's about awakening our senses, right? Not just checking the weather on, a, on an app on our phone, but stepping outside the door and experiencing it. And then when we move through our day, I would say be very intentional about the human beings you're encountering. So the way of beauty would say, uh, as I move about in my day-to-day work, um, in my life, that the most treasured gifts that surround me are human beings. So when I'm in these, in the presence of other human beings, here is the beautiful. C.S. Lewis, again, he says the most, um, what does he say? Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. That is just phenomenal, right? That your neighbor, this person, is the holiest object presented to your senses. So the way of beauty would say, let me be attentive to this face. You know, I'm on the subway or I'm at a bus or I'm whatever, I'm driving down the road or I'm in a deli getting getting a sandwich. This person in front of me has stories and experiences. Just for a moment, let me, let me look at them. Be aware of that. And then you just kind of proceed through your day. It's almost like becoming this sort of satellite dish to the Holy Spirit that receives signals of the beautiful. It, it means being intentional again by walking around like, where am I right now? Okay, we're on our phones, we have earbuds in, we're talking to people. But again, be, be conscious, you know, um, be conscious of the environment. Let your senses awaken to, to where God is. Thoreau, the transcendentalist writer, Henry David Thoreau says, God culminates in the present moment. That's pretty cool. God culminates, he's present in the present. So I think that's another way of being conscious. When you're, when you're coming home, the day and you encounter your family or your kids or your friends or your housemates, um, the question, how are you? Right? We do this all the time. Hey, how you doing? But nobody waits for the answer. Like it's a question. So I think practically living the way of beauty is asking the question and saying, like, now I'm gonna listen. You know, tell me about your day. Tell me about some experiences you had. Little things like that. I think silence, the final point, is is trying to cultivate some quiet in our day. When our kids get together on the dinner table, um, you know, we have four little ones, ages 10 to three, and it can be completely pandemonium sometimes. <laughs> but what I try to do practically to open ourselves up to beauty is before we say grace, I say, okay, everybody, close your eyes, take a deep breath. Let's have 10 seconds of quiet to thank our God for this day. And I'll close my eyes and I'll take a deep breath and I'll be quiet for 10 seconds. And sometimes I let it go to 15 seconds, to be honest with you, Dr. Mario. I'm like, sweet, they're still quiet. <laughs> but uh, sometimes they're not, and it gets crazy. But just giving a pregnant pause and trying to model that for my family is important. Uh, and I think throughout the day, we have many times where we can do that. It's almost like um, a liturgy of the hours, so to speak, where there's, there's pauses and we breathe and we recognize the presence of the beautiful around us. Just there's little ways and there's, there's many others, but there's a few. Those are all great suggestions. Really just an invitation for everybody to slow down a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and I would say to really, the only thing I would add to that is to really pray for the experience of the beautiful and, and let God mm-hmm. manifest himself, you know, in a certain way. Um, for me personally, I, my heart rests in the mountains. Uh, we lived in North Carolina for a few years and had the opportunity to do a lot of hiking in the Appalachians. Uh, two wow. summers ago, we were able to go to the Rockies for the first time and just, man, like talk about piercing my wow. heart. It's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And even though my heart rests in the mountains, as God would ordain it, I live in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is the opposite of high country. (laughs) (laughs) But, But I still have those memories within my experience that at times I can cultivate that memory into my heart. And, and still be able to find rest, like, because I know that those places are there. And I know that God has invited me into an experience of rest in those moments of my life. And then even now, if I'm stressed or I'm struggling with something, like I could just take a moment to, to put myself in silence, but then to also recollect on moments when I encountered the beautiful in my life. Yeah, that's really good. That, that reminds me of something Augustine said. God gave us three books, the book of creation, the book of scripture, um, and the book of our own lives. I think that was Augustine. So I, I remember at one time in my life, I kept a gratitude journal and I, I would just jot down, you know, number one, and I would just list something, some experience that I had where I felt like God was kind of tapping at my heart. And it was, you know, water skiing on Moosehead Lake up in Northern Maine, or it was a, a blizzard we got caught in somewhere. And or some food or drink or friendship or so that's another practical way of trying to live the way of beauty, a gratitude journal. <clears throat> another thing too, and we could throw so many on here, but really cultivate culture in your life. I mean, there's a great conversation that's been going on since the ancients, you know, so, so really spend some time reading, uh, you know, Homer or Plato or Augustine uh, listening to to Mozart or Beethoven, looking at the great art of uh, Michelangelo, Rodin, or the Impressionists, or whatever, really allow yourself to experience the beauty of culture that we've had for millennia now, and enter that great conversation so that you're familiar with these things. It's not; um, it can be sometimes looked upon as like snobbery or you know the elite, but all of this beauty is for all of us, and it flowed from the human drama. So I think that. Um, I think we should encourage listeners to just like find great art, find great books. I just bought two great books on the cathedrals of Europe and I just put those down on uh, my art, you know, our coffee table and that's something to look at. Yeah. We talk about the negativity of the internet, but moments like that, that's the good of the internet also is that yes. I can mm-hmm. just Google search Mozart or some of these cathedrals yeah. and, and I have access to it. Um, and so right. I don't, it certainly would love to be able to go see some of these cathedrals in person but even if I don't have the opportunity to do that, I can still search online and, uh, and encounter these things to, to some degree. And let yourself be inspired by it. Let yourself be overwhelmed, be wowed by it. Cultivate that spirit of wonder. John Paul II says that um, we need to create a climate of wonder. We should wonder, we should marvel at everything that is found in man, he said. And that's just a great invitation to cultivate this way of beauty. Phenomenal. Well, Bill, I, I certainly appreciate everything you've been saying. So uh, as we're bringing our conversation to a close, just a couple final questions for you. Uh, the first here is uh, anything you'd like to plug? Uh, big changes I know are happening at the TOB Institute. Anything you want to talk about mm-hmm. or something, some project that you're working on personally? Sure. Well, I, uh, we're, we're working on a couple of things regarding beauty, um, an upcoming hopeful podcast. And I certainly have written about it. So if you go to tobinstitute.org, and just search in the website for the word beauty. You'll find some articles I've written on it, but I would plug this above all. This uh, July, next July of uh, 2019, I'm going to be teaching my Way of Beauty, Theology of the Body, and Art course, and that's going to be in Malvern, Pennsylvania. So it's five days, 30 lecture hours, 
we immerse ourselves in everything we just talked about. So it's called The Way of Beauty, Theology of the Body and Art, a five-day retreat next July. I believe it's July 21st to the 26th of 2019 here in Pennsylvania. Fantastic. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. Certainly, we'll have links to the TOP Institute um, in the show descriptions uh, available for people to be able to access that. And uh, final question for you, Bill, what gives you hope? <laughs> Good question. What gives me hope? Uh, well, conversations like this, to be frank, I mean, what gives me hope is that you have invited me to talk about beauty, that you've uh, opened the door and that through this podcast, you're just inviting other people to contemplate it. I'm, I'm very much filled with hope just by that fact. And I've, I've had conversations with other people over the years where this, this longing to talk about the beautiful is kind of swelling more and more. So I'm just, I'm filled with hope by that. Cause I think you go back to Dostoevsky, right? That the beauty will save the world. We just are coming to a point where we're starting to recognize that slow down and ask that question and get on that journey. So that gives me a lot of hope. Amen. Well, Bill Donahue, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Uh, God bless you and, and the rest of your day. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Right. That's it for this episode of Always Hope. Thanks to Bill Donahue and the crew at the Theology of the Body Institute. This conversation has helped me to better understand the goodness of beauty and how I can be more disposed to receive the gift of beauty in my ordinary life. I can't wait to share with you my next episode where I tackle another challenging subject, how to be generous with our finances. You don't want to miss it. God bless and be good.